0: Good morning everybody you know we 've been uh, for the last two months uh, doing this new schedule on sunday morning and it 's had a lot of a lot of positives and uh, a few uh, negatives and you 've probably have felt some of of both of those. We are still as a, as a team both elders, deacons, and staff working on making adjustments to what we're doing on Sunday morning to make it even better and a little easier uh, for you. I know many of you, or at least some of you, uh, were expecting that we would, we would end this uh, uh, schedule back on Labor Day. Obviously, we didn't. And I understand where you got your expectation that we would have brought it to an end. We were not as clear as we thought uh, we were. Um, It was not our intention uh, to mislead or uh, to be unclear, but evidently we were both of those. So what we do is we do ask you to forgive us for giving you the Wrong expectation about how this uh, schedule would work and not work, but most of all, I ask you to continue to uh, work with us as we uh, make this change a success for our church and for its ministries. There are a lot of things that you may or may not be aware of that are that this change has enabled us to be able to do in our ministries and the success. And so just ahead of time, let me just thank you for your forgiveness and your support as we've made this monumental change in what we do on Sunday morning, more importantly when we do it, and then how we invite you to enter in. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to read uh, out of Ecclesiastes. It's in the middle of of your Bibles. If it's uh, looking it up in the Pew Bible that's uh, provided for you, you'll find it on page... Um, I think 707 or 807. I can't remember. It's one of those two. 707. All right. So let me read to you uh, beginning in verse 10 uh, to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night uh, do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man may toil in seeking. He will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. May God help us to understand this, His Word. If you remember the movie Armadeus, it uh, is really about two characters, two contemporary composers who compete against one another. Well, at least one competes. Uh, Antonio Solari, who is... um, a devout religious person who has mediocre gifts and mediocre masterpieces and is unnoticed, unrecognized in comparison uh, to his contemporary, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who is pictured as a drunk, a womanizer, and a man of bad character. His music is filled with masterpieces, and it also comes to him with very little effort and so oftentimes under the influence of alcohol with no sleep. Mozart is famous in all the world. And that bothers Solari. The point of the film is that this one character, this unnoticed uh, composer has an existential crisis and all that simply means is he sees the world as unfair. At least. He is unfair. And here's here's his unfairness. Why would God take all of the beauty and talent and and expertise and give it to this uh, defiled human being, this loathsome being, Mozart, and only give him the ability to know the difference? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, yes, you've given Mozart all this great talent. The talent you gave me is to recognize I don't have it. And that's unfair. And therefore, God, you and I, we don't get along anymore. We're enemies. By no means is Solari the first person who ever questioned God in that way. There are prayers throughout the Bible, like the 73rd Psalm. Asaph prays it this way. He says, I envy the arrogant. When I see the prosperity of the wicked, they have no pain. Until death, they are not in trouble like others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And there and there is our own text, Ecclesiastes 8. And what, what Ecclesiastes 8 teaches is that it seems like the wicked gets what the righteous deserve and the righteous get what the wicked deserve. How's that fair? How's that right? Even in Jesus' own life. How does Holy Week begin? With the crowd shouting Hosanna, which is what? glory to God in the highest. But it's not long within that same week, it turns to, cry, to Christ to crucify him. The very same people. And, and when they're offered a choice, Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, the, the, the one who nobody should aspire to love, or Jesus who has done absolutely nothing wrong. And the people choose Barabbas. And that same principle is extended into the disciples of Jesus. They start dropping like flies until they're all executed, save one, and he gets the privilege to live his days out on the island of Patmos in prison. Meanwhile, the Caesars, the governors who sent them there, they're prospering. They were vicious and cruel, and they seem to be doing well. Why 11 out of 12 of the disciples are executed. Not because they were unfaithful, but because they were faithful. And then we fast forward today and we still see this dynamic at work, don't we? The best people seem to get what the wicked deserve and the wicked seem to get what the righteous deserve. Suffering seems to come to the faithful and the hardworking, but not to the wicked. What are we to do with that kind of reality in which we're living right now where this wicked seem to get scot- off scot-free and the righteous, we seem to just suffer? Our text gives us two answers. They're both ours, so they'll be easy to remember. There is a reckoning and then there's relief. First, let's look at the fact that there is going to be a reckoning In other words, when there is injustice in the world, where unfairness seems to rule and have the day, one day it will end. All injustice has an expiration date already stamped on it. Evil will be called to an account. And this is something that Christians can rejoice in. Not just simply know and believe and think, oh, it's all going to work out in the end, but simply... We are called to rejoice. Listen to the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. You don't get it quite so much here, but you can get it a little bit better in the, in the original language that there's almost a hint of rejoicing in the tone of the writer. In verse 13, it will not be well with the wicked. It's almost like hearing the, the song Ding Dong the Witch is Dead. Nearly 10% of all the psalms, there are 150 of them, they're in the middle of your Bible, 10% of them are called imprecatory psalms. The word to imprecate means to pray against. We don't tend to think of it that way, but the fifth psalm, for instance, God, you hate all evildoers, you hate the bloodthirsty man, make them fear their guilt. Or the 10th Psalm, rise up, Lord, against the oppressors, break the arm of the wicked, call them to account. And if you're writing them down, you can Google this, Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 17, Psalm 35, Psalm 50, Psalm 59, Psalm 69, and so on and so on. 10% of all the Psalms, 15 of them, are these kinds of Psalms where we're calling upon God To bring justice where there's injustice, where it's unfair. The point is this. They actually pray, God's people pray, that harm will come to those who harm. And the tender side of us might rise up and say, how could God possibly be a God of, of justice? Who would be a God who would be vengeful? A God who would bring his absolute rule on those who are harming people. The answer to that question is only only those who have the luxury and the privilege of not being oppressed can focus upon the love and forgiveness of God at the expense of His justice. Only those who live a, a sheltered life can afford to think that God is only love and no judgment. The Apostle Paul himself said this in Romans, consider the kindness and severity of God. He is a what? A consuming fire. What do we do with this? If we know this, what do we do with the victims? Maybe you are a victim. Maybe you know somebody is a victim. What do you say? Ultimately, if you are a victim or if you've been experienced someone who is a victim, your perspective on God radically changes instead of just merely a God of love, but he's also a God of retaliation, a God of vengeance, a God of justice. Because it's the only thing that you and I can ever say to a Holocaust victim or a victim of slavery or a victim of human trafficking, when we come face to face with a Syrian refugee, what do we say? When we talk to someone who has been bullied, someone who grew up with an abusive father, a borderline mother, somebody from Parkland High School, what do we say? We give them the Apostles' Creed. I believe that Jesus Christ descended into hell, and I believe that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Victims want God to punish their oppressors. Do we believe that? Maybe a deeper question is simply, do we rejoice in it? Not just believe it, but do we long for God to make everything right? The victims actually do. Those that are oppressed, those that have been hurt, those that have been abused, those that have become wretched victims in this world at the expense of the oppressor, they rejoice in these words. Just as we who are privileged, who have never been a victim, rejoice in the words that I believe in a God who forgives and loves. We praise God not just for His glorious grace, but also for His glorious justice. This is not an indication that if something is wrong with us. When we rejoice in God's justice, it's proof that there's something right with us. That we know that what we experience in this world is not right. It is unfair. Every time your little kid comes up to you and says life is unfair and you come back, but life isn't unfair. The right answer is, but God will make it right. It will one day be well for the righteous. Even the cross tells us this that there are two ways in which God's justice is going to be dispensed that his justice is going to be satisfied. Every wickedness, every kind of wickedness has got to give an account. The wickedness that out there that we complain about, the wickedness in here that we hide, and the wickedness wickedness in our own hearts, all of it must give an account to God who is righteous and just. And either justice is going to be satisfied vicariously, that is, what that means is that Jesus Christ on the cross, he took what we deserved, every bit of wickedness was emptied on him, he drank to the dregs the cup of God's justice for us in our place, or the only one that is left will be us. absorb the cost of our wickedness and therefore it is either vicarious or retributive this is the part we don't like to talk about that God will hold us account those who go into eternity either go into eternity claiming the gift of Christ our substitute or I'm here on my own I'll pay my own bills And the truth be told, if Christ did not pay, the only one left to pay will be us. That's what the Bible talks about when the Bible talks about hell. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about love. Because he knows this world has been turned upside down by sin, by the wickedness of man. And he has promised to come since Genesis 3.15 and make it right. To make your life whole for you to flourish, for you to enjoy the grace and the beauty and the forgiveness and the acceptance of God, justice must pay. Well, why can't God just be loving? Why can't He just overlook and everybody be forgiven? The answer is: as some actually prefer to go to hell than to go to heaven. Going to heaven with Jesus requires us to acknowledge that we are in the camp of the wicked. And many, because of their pride, will not go there. They will not admit that they're in the camp of the wicked. There is none righteous, no, not one, until you apply it to me. That's what's going on in Luke 16. It's the parable that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus there in Hades... And the rich man looks to Abraham who was there with Lazarus and says, please ask Lazarus to dip his finger into the cool water and touch my lips that I might be relieved. In other words, the rich man is saying, I would rather have a servant in hell than be a servant in heaven. It gives new meaning to the idea that pride comes before the fall. We tend to think that everybody in hell is not going to want to be there. Pride will hold them there. I'll say or try to say her name, Set Vlana, she is the daughter of Joseph Stalin. And she recorded in his biography, His Last Day, what it was like. And it's a a long narrative, but the bottom line is, toward the end of his life, he would wave his hand and pronounce curses on everyone in the room, his family, his advisors, his friends. And then she said that at the very next moment after the curse, a final effort, the spirit wrenched itself free from its flesh. What she was describing seemed to describe a man who preferred riding on his high horse into hell than to walk humbly along with his Savior into heaven. The retribution of God for sin is terrifying. It's tragic. But there is going to be a reckoning. And it really is the hope of the world. Because if there is no reckoning, then there is no hope for the world. But if there is a reckoning, what hope is there for us? save Jesus Christ on the cross. But there's also relief. There will also be, in verse 11, he acknowledges that the judgment of God rarely comes fast. We want it immediately. We get ourselves into trouble or somebody victimizes us and we want what? We want someone to vindicate us. We want somebody to say we were the victim. We were the ones who were acted upon unjustly. But that usually doesn't come when we want it. He goes on in verse 12 and he says, Though a sinner uh, does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And then in verse 13, But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And yet, everyone in this room can testify that it is not yet that way. Neither do the wicked pay, nor do the righteous find relief. It is not well yet. What do we say to Stalin's victims? What do we say to those who have experienced oppression and injustice and abuse in this world? What do we say to the followers of Jesus who received Barabbas rather than their Savior? What do we say to those who are led to their own crosses? What do we say if we're salari? What if I'm a abandoned spouse? What if I'm a child who's being abused? What if I'm the one who has her or his life completely changed in a nanosecond by a bullet in a school? If you are without Jesus, I have no hope for you this morning. The only hope that we offer is relief with redemption because there is no relief without redemption. There is no Easter without a good Friday, the valley of the shadow of death that you and I must walk through with Jesus to the end of our relief. Sin and evil happens a hundred times and prolongs life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God. I know it will be well. The teacher here is calling us who suffer to a future orientation. Paul talks about how missionaries that he was with were facing death all day long. Persecution and prison beatings. And he says all of these things that are happening to us, they are what? Light and momentary afflictions. How can he say that? How can someone honestly look at a victim and say that they are light and momentarily, momentary? It is because it is in comparison to the weight of the glory that awaits us. We are told to fix our eyes on the things that are unseen. The things that we see are temporary. The wicked getting what the righteous deserve and the righteous getting what the wicked deserve is temporary. Jesus who died on the cross vicariously for our sins as our substitute that covers our best days and our worst days and they are things that are unseen. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. Often we call that what? The F- faith hall of fame. It's a list of men and women in the Old Testament who by faith trusted in God, even though they were, many of them, victims. In fact, chapter 11 defines faith and then gives us a list of examples. It defines faith as the evidence of things that is hoped for and being certain of things that we do not yet see. All the people listed as examples of faith in Hebrews 11 have three things in common. They all had faith in God... They all had pain in their lives, and they all took the long view. And then it goes on and says this. At the very end, it says, all of these people died in faith, not having yet received the things that were promised to them, at least not in their lifetime. But having seen these things from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, where they were seeking a homeland, a better country, heaven is the only answer to hell on earth. Do we see that? And you say, but I can't see. Not with the eyes in your head. Only the eyes of faith can see heaven, our ultimate destination, a better country. That's why the Harvard professor of philosophy, Josiah Roy, said in his book, We need a devotion to something more than ourselves. The writer of Ecclesiastes says it this way in verse 16, I applied my heart to wisdom. Well, then what is wisdom? Verse 17, wisdom is this, coming to the recognition that I cannot figure out what God is doing. We tend to think that life, God is doing nothing if I can't figure out what he's doing. And the truth is, we may never know that's what makes him God and not us. Wisdom is understanding that we are that we have invisible realities and mysteries at work. They're always at play, and we may not always see them or understand them. One of the greatest ones is found in Romans 8:28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And yet we don't always see the purpose. We are always looking for the purpose but we're not always finding the purpose but never assume if you can't figure out the purpose that there's no purpose maybe the lord's supper can help us best here which we will celebrate lord willing next week when you think about the lord's supper and the baking of the bread of all the ingredients that go into that sweet bread If you break those ingredients out, they're horrible by themselves. Some of them, like the flour, that if we just took a spoonful, it would give us dry mouth and we would run for the water. But think about the bitter uh, salt and yeast. By themselves, they would not be good. And then there are some ingredients that just make us sick, like the raw eggs and the butter, but the final product. Now that's delicious. And the life of the righteous is like that. It's full of bitterness and dry mouth and ingredients that we don't see how they all fit together. But in the end, when God comes back to make all things new. We will be the sweet bread of Christ. And we will be delicious How did Jesus set that table? By drinking the horrible sour vinegar on the cross. You know, when we come forward in the Lord's Supper, we often will say, take a look at the opportunity to look back at what Jesus did. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember the bitterness that Jesus went through to give us the sweetness of the gospel. But we're also invited, what? To look around. We're not simply individuals in a room participating in the Lord's Supper by ourselves. We're in community. We look around and behold in one another's face, Jesus Christ. That's why C.S. Lewis in his book will say, next to the blessed sacrament, next to the Lord's Supper, your neighbor is the holiest object that will ever be present to your senses. Even the ones that drive you absolutely nuts. That's why we encourage you as you walk forward to receive the bread and juice, talk to one another. You're in community together. We take this as the Lord's body. But it's also to look forward because there's another meal coming that it's just the appetizer for. And that's the wedding feast of the Lamb that we're all invited to come. We have a seat at our Father's table in which the host is Jesus Christ. But we are not there yet, are we? Truth be told, the wicked still prosper and the righteous are victims. Our path might include being baked and taken through the valley of the shadow of death in the next few years. But as we go through the valleys, hopefully we will see that Jesus takes us, takes good care of us there too because he is the light into the darkness by which we are carried to walk because he is always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, the gospel, your gospel, your grace, your truth, your kindness, your severity, your love, your justice, it's all such a mystery to us. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us all to apply our hearts to to wisdom. But first and foremost, to recognize humbly that we cannot figure out the work of God. And yet, we can still trust because of what you have willingly endured, even death on a cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.